years ago, I came to the conclusion that uh, one doesn't really need a degree in philosophy or psychology to understand people and, un and the attitudes that drive them to behave the way they do. In my opinion, all you really need is the ability to read bumper stickers. <laughs> it tells a lot about a person. What's written on your car says a lot about your character, your beliefs, your allegiances, and your outlook. Take, for example, the guy I saw some time ago driving like a maniac up a busy main street and through city traffic. And when I finally caught up to the guy uh, at the next light, what he had posted on the rear bumper of his vehicle said it all. Written like a neon sign across the back of his bumper were the words perfectly characterizing his philosophy. They said they went like this. If you don't like the way I drive, get off the sidewalk. The one that really reveals the heart and mind of the driver within is the forthright claim. And I've seen this many times. As a matter of fact, I do own the road. Seen that one? Honestly, these days are, there are far worse things written on stickers for the world to read. And you don't have to look far to find America's views on life and living. Just look about two feet off the ground on the south end of a north-going vehicle in fact, when I first prepared these messages on giving, I was driving and meditating on the subject when something broke my concentration, and I noticed in front of me one of those pearls of great wisdom. And interestingly, it had to do with money. The phrase went like this, the Lord giveth and Uncle Sam taketh away. Now, you're all probably familiar with that one, but in a roundabout way, however, I think the sticker could be altered to fit what many people feel when they hear a preacher approach the subject of giving and stewardship According to some surveys that I've read, many people believe today that the sticker could read, the Lord giveth and the church taketh away. And there may be some valid reasons for that misconception, but for the most part, I'm convinced that it is precisely a lack of biblical teaching that engenders that kind of perspective. One article I read, one church attender boasted that in the 10 years that his pastor had been there, he never once preached on money. Once, not once but the church had done well financially. So his thinking seemed to imply that if we can get by without talking about it, great, so be it. However, the truth of that matter is that giving is a matter of great theological importance and a major expression of our Christian faith. And uh, not many people understand stewardship that way. That's probably because for years the only time the subject was ever mentioned from the pulpit was when a church had a specific need and the pastor would get up and bludgeon people with the scriptures on giving. That, thankfully, is no longer the case among healthy scripturally-based ministries, and hopefully, certainly not the case here today. I'm not trying to bludgeon you. We're just in that section of Malachi that happens to talk about that subject. But the need for solid biblical instruction on stewardship has produced an abundance of helpful and significant materials available to Christians and has fostered a healthy biblical understanding of an important doctrine among evangelical churches. Let me ask you, how important do you suppose the concept of giving was to Jesus? How important do you think it was? Did you know that of the 38 parables of Jesus, about 16 of them are devoted to our use of money and material wealth? The Gospels speak frequently on this subject. About one out of every eight verses in the New Testament, on the average, one out of every eight verses deals with money. Did you know that? It's quite extensive. 
In the Bible, there are 500 references, over 500 references to prayer, less than 500 references to faith, but there are over 2,000 references to material wealth and possessions and how we deal with them. The biblical teaching here in, on, on money and its use is intensely practical, and it carries great theological significance. Unfortunately, because it's been twisted around by some and sadly, sadly neglected by most, we tend to shy away from it. The Bible testifies that the concept of giving is of absolute importance to every believer because our attitude toward giving reflects our obedience toward God. Haddon Robinson, former president of Denver Seminary, says that as a measure of our commitment, our pocketbook beats our hymn book. Interesting statement. One familiar tale light truth informs us of one biblical perspective. You've seen it, I'm sure. Tithe, if you love Jesus, anyone can honk. Right? Like a bumper sticker, what's written in a person's checkbook and bank statement speaks loudly of what he or she really thinks is important. Pastor Brian Kluth, president of the Christian Stewardship Association at one time agrees. He says every checkbook is a theological document. It tells you where your treasure is and thus where your heart is. So we need to understand then the biblical teaching if we are to grow spiritually because it's important. And I believe that a growing church glorifies God in the way that it handles its finances in the way that Christians give. But in order to grasp that reality, that truth, we need to internalize three significant concepts. We need to pers God's perspective on it, which we covered last time, God's purposes for giving, which we're going to cover today, and God's pattern for giving, which we'll look at next week. David Briggs, religion editor of the Associated Press, once said, if it's any consolation to clergy today, there is a long history of reluctance to pay tithes dating at least as far back as the prophet Malachi's time. And the penetrating words of Malachi are exactly what is our motivation to understand the joy and the blessing of biblical stewardship. Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3 for a moment. I just want to cover a couple of verses but most of what today's text is going to deal with is, is a lot of other scriptures, selected scriptures throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament. But Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, we covered some last week. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now the Lord is deeply concerned that we gain his perspective on this, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as well. And we learned last time that to gain the biblical perspective, we must understand three things about this giving process. In the process, here's the perspective. Three things. Number one, possession. Remember we talked about this last week? Everything belongs to God. Everything we have is His, period. It's a fact. Second thing was priority. 
The Bible says, give of your best to God. So whether it's money, time, talent, or whatever it is, prayer life, devotional life, God deserves our best, not just leftovers. He deserves the best we have. That's the priority. And the principle that we found out last week was that generosity begets generosity. When we give generously, we are generously provided for, the scripture says. God honors a heart that gives willingly, generously, and cheerfully. So, not only do we need to get this biblical perspective, but what I want to talk about today is the kind of giving that glorifies God understands the biblical purposes behind it. Knowing why we give is connected to the joy and fulfillment that we experience when we give. Is that right? Why would you desire to give if you have no idea of the reasons for it? Because solid teaching on this subject was avoided for years and years and years. Much of my generation, boomers and busters, who, who were returning to church, often found themselves biblically challenged in this area. I remember when I first came to Christ and I started attending an evangelical church, I had no idea anything about the offering. I mean, the, the church background that I came from, when the basket came around, you threw in a couple of quarters or a dollar bill or whatever. And that was it. When I heard the word tithe, I was like, what? What does that mean? Statistics reveal that people under 40 contribute about 2% of their income to charitable causes. Did you know that? If you were to ask people over 50 who have grown up in the evangelical church what a Christian is supposed to give, they would probably say a tenth or a tithe because that's the way that they were brought up. But you probably wouldn't get that response from most of my kids' generation today, especially if they'd grown up in another denomination or not going to church at all. I'm inclined to think that most people who have not been exposed to the church but are now coming to faith feel that they should give something as a matter of principle, but they have no idea how much, what for, or any of that perspective. And one insightful observer wrote that giving in church for them is kind of like paying admission to something. I mean, they figure that they might pay $15, $20 for a, a local high school basketball game during a playoff or eight bucks for a movie, maybe even drop $30 to $100 or more for a concert ticket. So following that formula, I think they may begin to do the math in their mental estimation, and it goes like this. The music was great. The lighting was okay. The seats were marginal at best. The speaker was pretty good, a little long. And the people were pretty friendly and accepting. So this service, all things considered, is worth about 10 bucks. So drop a 10 spot in the plate as it goes by. But what does the Bible really have to say about this kind of thing? Does it even matter? And for most of you sitting here, I know that you know what the biblical purposes are for giving. But there's an awful lot of people that visit here that don't, that have never been taught it, and a whole lot of people out there in radio land that don't know what the Bible has to say about it. I'll tell you something. What does the Bible have to say about it? Does it even matter? How we give, why we give, how much we give, it all matters to God. Because we matter to God. God does not need our money. He does not need 
our financial backing. His desire is to bless us. Wise stewardship opens up the opportunity for incredible joy and incredible blessing. And when we are wise stewards, it honors God as an act of worship. It involves us in the eternal work of the kingdom and it proves the sincerity of our love for him. That, in a nutshell, is why we give. There are clear biblical purposes for giving. And when we give purposefully and according to God's plan, we realize that giving is an act of worship, a response to God's graciousness. It is not the price of admission, but the product of adoration. That's what it is. So, what are the biblical purposes for it? Well, I want to give to you a few of them this morning. Here they are. Not exhaustive, but pretty much the predominant ones that are given in the New Testament, but also supported by the Old Testament. First one. Somebody, somebody tell me what they think the first purpose for giving is. Why does God want us to give? Just throw one out there. Help others. Help others. Great. That's exactly right. It provides support for the poor. That's the first one. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we looked at that last week in verse 1, says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Paul reveals the purpose for his collection. One of the first things Paul did when he went on his missionary journey is to take up an offering for somebody. He would collect money. Here Paul reveals the purpose for it. It's for the saints. There may have been other reasons and purposes for the collection, yet the primary New Testament application for all collections that we read about was to benefit and help, guess who? Needy church people. That's interesting, isn't it? You probably wouldn't have thought that off the top of, the, of your head like that. The church should invest, the scripture says, in its own life and in its own people. Now that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to those outside the church, at all. But Galatians 6.10 says this, so then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And I think Paul's point here is that the church must be responsible to sustain itself by meeting the needs of its people locally as well as universally and globally. There are people in every church who have incredible, incredible needs. And within our own local congregation, there are people who don't have enough food to eat, clothes to wear. They'd have no gas for their car some weeks, no heat. And one of the most gratifying things to us as pastors here is to know that through your generous giving, we, in the past, and just recently even, just last week, have been able to meet those kinds of needs. To go buy someone a couple of weeks worth of groceries or more. To fix a vehicle. Even to provide a vehicle for somebody free of charge. To keep a house full of kids warm in the winter. And the list goes on and on. One of the first things Paul undertook in his ministry was a collection for the poor and needy saints at Jerusalem. If you look at Galatians 2, 9 and 10... Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 talks a lot about this collection. One advantage that the church in Paul's day had over our church today is that they didn't have buildings to maintain or programs to maintain. 
Big advantage. They didn't have computers to buy, no copiers to fix, no curriculum to order for the kids, no mortgage to pay, no siding to replace, no auditoriums to carpet, no chairs to buy, no driveways to pave, and the list goes on and on and on. When someone had a need, they were free to meet it without the added responsibility of maintaining a church facility. Giving was primarily directed toward people rather than buildings. I can see your heads going, yeah, amen. However, I need to draw your attention back to the Old Testament for a moment and remember books like the book of Haggai, which I referenced last week, who were back in the land rebuilding the temple and God called them to task because they were not giving enough to build that temple the way that God wanted it built. The place of worship. Read through the Old Testament books of Moses and you'll find out that the temple and the place of worship, the sanctuary, was always, always, always well-staffed and well-cared for by the people of the church community, the saints. It was a great priority to God. Paul spent an entire year collecting money from other churches that he planted to help the poor of another church, not their own, the church at Jerusalem. His letter to the Romans speaks of this effort. In Romans 15, verse 25, he says this, Now I'm going to Jerusalem to help God's people. The believers in Macedonia and southern Greece were happy to give their money to help the poor among God's people at Jerusalem. This concept of giving in support of the poor was established almost immediately in the early church. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And verse 44. Acts 2 verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Skip down to chapter 4 for a moment and look at verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had need. Imagine a community like that. Just imagine. Clearly, one of God's primary purposes for New Testament giving is to support the needy within the community of faith. But the Old Testament equally reveals that the same principle has been around in God's plan for a long, long time. It's not just the church. It also occurred in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, you can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it for you. Chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, verse 28, and then in 15, a few verses there, listen to what 
The NIV says, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. That's what Malachi was talking about. If there is a poor man among you, your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-hearted and freely lend him whatever he needs. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Early on, God established that principle. There is a tremendous need to understand this reason for giving in the church today. Because we can do so much more when we realign our vision in this regard, especially in these economically strained times. And I want to say this because... I believe that God is going to work through churches that have his heart on this in these coming days. That while the rest of the world tightens their grip around their material resources in a dying market, we the church should be ready to open ours. We should. Remember in the New Testament when Paul was writing about all these purposes and principles for giving. Who was he writing to? He was not writing to the United States of America. He was not writing to wealthy countries. He was writing to impoverished people in churches who had not a lot of things to give. And yet, at the same time, they were persecuted by the government and they were persecuted by society because of their faith. And yet, Paul's outlining these principles to be generous and to give to the needy in the midst of that kind of an economy and culture. When we read these principles, we kind of filter it through our own Americanized version, don't we? Think back to what it must have been like then. And we need to be like them and realize what God has blessed us with. And somebody mentioned it this morning. All that he has given us. And look around at those who have less and meet their needs. Remember what Paul quoted Jesus as saying in Acts chapter 20, verse 35? It is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't read that quote in any of the Gospels, but Paul quoted Jesus as saying that in Acts. Giving to support the needy mirrors the image of Christ in our character, and that brings immense pleasure to our Father. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, exhorts the writer of Hebrews, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's Hebrews 13, 16. I want you to consider the wisdom of one of history's most foremost financiers, Solomon, the richest men ever to live. I'm going to put these on the screen for you. Proverbs 14, 31, just a sampling. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Honors God when you honor and are gracious to the needy. Proverbs 21, 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. 
In Proverbs 19, 17, he who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. See, God honors men and women who give for this purpose. And the scripture says he doesn't forget it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says this, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So the first purpose for giving is to provide support for the poor and especially those who are believers. A second biblical purpose for giving is that it produces sustenance for our church leaders. Now, there are times in Scripture when we find that Paul received collections that were for himself, actually. In fact, the book of Philippians is a thank you letter for one such collection. Paul understood that one of the purposes for giving was to sustain those who dedicated their lives to preaching and teaching in a full-time capacity and ministering. Now, i got to make a disclaimer here as I preach this to you. Please understand that I am not in any way trying to be self-serving. This church has, over the years that I have been here, taken the commands of Scripture very seriously. Very seriously in this regard. And have super abundantly provided for me and my family. And we are extremely thankful for that blessing. Extremely thankful. However, in other churches... That's not always the case. I've read statistics indicating that a large percentage of pastors said that their compensation contributed to conflict in their marriages and that some feel forced to supplement their income by getting another job. Many Christians simply have not been taught the principles clearly outlined in the scriptures concerning this. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was compelled to clarify it. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4. Paul says, he's addressing these Corinthians, and he says, um, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You know, as Paul makes his appeal to the Old Testament here, in verses 13 and 14, he says this, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? That's why God said, Bring the tithe into the storehouse, that my storehouse may be filled with food. Do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple? It was their sustenance. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the, church, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel 
to get their living from the gospel. I want you to flip back in the Old Testament for a moment. I want to show you something in Numbers chapter 18. See how Paul is referring back there. Numbers chapter 18 and verse 8. Numbers 18, 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. Skip down now to verse 19. All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and to your sons and to your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and to your descendants with you. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. To the sons of Israel, uh, Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. Verse 25, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Interesting. The priests who gained their sustenance from the tithes that came in were also commanded to tithe of that to give back to the Lord again. They had no houses. They had no land. They had no inheritance. The, Lord's, the Lord was their inheritance. And that's why he enjoined the congregation in the Old Testament to give to the temple so that they could be sustained. Clearly, in the Old Testament, support of the poor and the sustenance of the leaders were primary purposes for giving. That's why Malachi came down so hard on the people of his day because they had completely abandoned the practice altogether. Now some people might be thinking, wow, you get a pretty good deal for working one day a week. <laughs> you know, it's the cliche. And I've actually, I've actually had people say that to me seriously. Sitting in the, in the bank talking about, you know, small loan at one time years ago. And they asked what my profession was, and I'd say, I'm a pastor. And then they asked the salary, and I gave them the salary, and wow, not bad for one day a week. <laughs> and they weren't trying to be facetious, they were serious. That's what they thought. Well, it would be if it was one day a week. It would be a great day. Early on in the church, though, they had to face the issue of financial support of the workers. Paul applied the Old Testament principles of God's provision for the priests to the New Testament position of pastors and elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this, The elders who rule well ought to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and here's that verse again, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And what Paul teaches here through the Holy Spirit is that those who are called by God to full-time ministry should be cared for by the church. This is why we have missions too. This is why we strive, when Henry and Vicki were on the field, we were striving 
every year to raise their support up another notch, another notch, because we believe that they shouldn't have to worry about going, coming back home and trying to solicit money to do what they do. They should be supported fully by the church. Because when ministry is done according to the scriptural principles, it's hard work. It's excruciatingly exhausting, the scripture says, laboring to the point of weariness, to be exact. And those who fulfill this call, Paul says, are worthy of double honor. God wants us to give with biblical purposes in mind. First, because it provides support for the needy. Second, because it sustains the leadership. And thirdly, because it proves the sincerity of our love. Question, what is the single most significant identifying characteristic of a Christ follower according to Jesus? Love. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And what happens when you love? Love gives. Love gives of time. Love gives of self and of finances. Love gives of everything. How do we know the Father loves us? How do you know God loves you? He gave us his Son. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How do we know Jesus loves us? Because he gave everything he had, including his life. Not out of his surplus, or because he simply felt like doing it, or because he had to do it. It was an act of love. A willingness to give according to love has practical effects. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. If we're not prepared to give of our time and money, we certainly are not going to be prepared to lay down our lives. Christian financial expert Ron Blue highlights something that every one of us needs to get embedded in our minds, that, and it's this. Giving is a spiritual decision, not an economic decision. It's a spiritual decision. Jesus said that love proves you are a Christian and giving, Paul says, proves that you love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I know you're bouncing all around, but this is giving you a good overview. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Since you excel in so many ways... You have so much faith, such gifted speakers, such knowledge, such enthusiasm, and such love for us. Now I want you to excel also in this gracious ministry of giving. I'm not saying you must do it, even though the other churches are eager to do it. This is one way to prove, Paul says, your love is real. And the word prove there means to approve by testing. And the indication is that it furnishes continual proof. Paul indicates here that the Macedonians were pleased to give. They begged for the opportunity to be involved. No one begged them. They considered it a privilege. 
They considered it a privilege. Verses 3 through 5 in the Good News Bible says this, I can assure you that they gave as much as they could and even more than they could. Of their own free will, they begged us and pleaded for the privilege of having a part in helping God's people in Judea. It was more than we could have hoped for. First they gave themselves to the Lord and then by God's will they gave themselves to us as well. How is it usually today? Who begs who? Is it usually the church that begs to give? Or people that beg church people to give? This was just the opposite here. In other words, Paul says that the legitimacy, the authenticity of our love for others is continually proven by our overflowing graciousness in giving. The test of genuine love is our willingness to give. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says this, This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In verse 16 through 18 it says, And we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. What is John saying? Simply this, don't tell them that you love them if you're not going to show them. If you're not willing to show them, I should say. Because... If you have what is necessary to meet their need and you don't do it, John says, how can you love them? You've heard me say this probably many times. But if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the New Testament ever records Jesus ever once saying the words, I love you, to anyone. Now, I'm not trying to build a huge theology around this. But it helps me to understand that Jesus never settled for cheap talk and easy cliches and meaningless phrases. He showed love by his action. Love is an action word. It's action intensive. The three nails that held Jesus' hands and feet to that cross speak louder to me personally than any three words ever could, that he loves me with an everlasting, inseparable, unconditional, and always available love. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8 here, that Paul intentionally points out that the Corinthians' giving was not to be motivated here by his command. Verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. It's true, God wants us to give from the top of the purse, but not as much as he does from the bottom of our hearts. I'm going to say this, I'm going to make this statement, giving should always be motivated by love, never by law. It's not by law. It should be motivated by love. It's true. It's a simple truth. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And the ultimate example of that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said already, God loved us so much, he didn't just give us his word, he became 
the word and gave us his life. He gave. And that's the fourth purpose, New Testament purpose in our practice of giving. It's this. It personifies the sacrifice of our Lord. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Few statements, in my estimation, surpass this verse as a summary of the gospel message. Christ literally became nothing so that we might gain everything. Are we willing to go that far in our giving for someone else's salvation? They're not going to be saved by our death. But how far are we willing to walk the distance with a person and give of ourselves that they might come to Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice our time and our effort, our finances even, or our comfort in order to help others? You see, because you and I have become spiritual billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires, because Christ was willing to become a street person. How can we hold back materially when he has blessed us so abundantly? But you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't have anything to give. Well, you know what it boils down to? It boils down to what Paul just mentioned in this passage of scripture. It boils down to giving yourself. They gave of themselves to God first. They gave themselves to God first and then to Paul. I've told you before about the church service one Sunday and the offering plate came around to the little girl at the end of the row and she took the plate, put it down on the floor and stood in it. When they asked her what she was doing, she said, in Sunday school I learned that I was supposed to give myself to God. So that's what I'm doing. And it's true. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5 says it. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Why do we give? We give because it provides support for the poor. It produces sustenance for the leaders. It proves the sincerity of our love. We give because it personifies the sacrifice of our Lord, but ultimately the final reason that we give. It glorifies God. It glorifies God. It promotes the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 to 14 says this, For your giving does not end in meeting the wants of your fellow Christians. It also results in an overflowing tide of thanksgivings to God. Moreover, your very giving proves the reality of your faith. And that means that men thank God that you practice the gospel that you profess to believe in as well as for the actual gifts your fellowship makes to them and to others. And yet further, men will pray for you and feel drawn to you because you have obviously received a generous measure of the grace of God. And I love the way the, the English, today's English version translates verse 14 there. It says, and so with deep affection, they will pray for you because of the extraordinary grace God has shown you. Friends, we give ultimately because it exalts and elicits praise to God. And that's what it's all about. 
The honest reality when it comes to radically changing our view about giving, it's not that it's about us at all. It's all about him. What God wants to see is that this issue of giving is way, way, way bigger than giving to the church. It's about a way of life that gives continually to God in everything. When our giving is stimulated by that kind of a purpose, to honor God, it results in the bringing of unimaginable glory to our Father, and we get blessed as well. Truly, the glory of God is the most important purpose for our giving. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Close with this story of a missionary that went to Africa to be part of a ministry already in the works. This man had been raised on the Pacific coast of the United States and he absolutely loved the ocean. He had hoped that when sent to Africa, he'd be stationed in an area next to the ocean and his wish was not fulfilled, however, and upon his arrival, he found that his mission station was about 85 miles inland from the coast. So, he determined to make the best of his assignment, and part of his responsibilities involved teaching in a Bible school in the area. And it had been set up to provide ministerial training for the natives so that they could be effective evangelists to their own people. So in his teaching, many times this missionary teacher would draw upon the ocean for his illustrative material. Often he talked of his great love for the ocean, which he missed being this far inland. And his students made note of that special affection that he had for the sea. Well, in the course of his teaching, he began to teach about the fact that much of the Christian life is one of giving. And he spoke about Christ being given as a special gift to this earth when he came as a baby in the manger. And he shared this with the native students at Christmas time. He wasn't at all sure that the concept had been grasped by them at all, but he did the best that he knew how about giving. So when there was this time for a break in the school year, Vacation as the students were dismissed for a couple of weeks. And one day during this break, there was a knock at his door. The missionary went to the door, and lo and behold, on the other side of the screen door was one of his students standing there with a huge smile on his face. Upon closer inspection, he noticed that the young man had scratches all over his face and his legs and his arms and his hands. His clothes looked like they had been on, just torn apart through the jungle in a formidable amount of rugged terrain that he had traveled. There was this tiredness and exhaustion on his face as well. However, in his hands, this man was holding a basketful of seashells. Obviously, they were not to be found locally. And it dawned on the missionary. This young man walked all the way to the ocean to bring these seashells back to me. Here's a gift from the ocean, the young man beamed. The missionary was almost overcome with emotion as he replied, but you've walked almost 170 miles to do this. And his black face shone with surprise and delight and a big smile. And he pulled himself up to his full height and he said, 
The long walk was part of the gift. Christ went the distance for you and for me. The question that he asks of us now is will we go the distance in our giving to him? Because God doesn't expect us to give more than we are able. But is he honored by anything less 